closer I got to the light, I began to discern different figures, different people, and I distinctly heard my grandmother call me, and I immediately went to her, and it felt great. Nobody says you're dying, that you're just allowed to sort of become aware of things, and I wasn't even bothered about what I'd left behind. Absolutely, that's the moment my life changed. That is the moment my life changed. Had I not had that near-death experience, I would have no interest in being here today. I think death is an illusion. I think death is a really nasty, bad lie. I don't see any truth in the word death at all. Studies into near-death experiences used to be the collecting of stories and anecdotes from people many dismissed as attention seekers or cranks. But now some scientists and medical practitioners are suggesting that something quite astonishing might lie behind these claims of passing into a different world. Glimpse of life after death or is it a trick of the mind? Well, with us now is Anne Walsh, who has a remarkable story to tell. When I died, I floated up the ceiling and then I went through this tunnel. I went into a tremendous place of peace, a place of great light. A sense of complete oneness, peace that I've longed for ever since. I was able to have a telepathic conversation with a horse. Everything was alive, the trees, the corn. I didn't hear any sound. I saw sunlight and I could see it. It was a beautiful garden. The new clinical research into near-death experiences is daring to suggest the impossible, that they are evidence that the mind can live on after the brain has stopped functioning. Dr. Pim van Lommel in Holland and Dr. Sam Parnier and Peter Fennick in Britain have pioneered this new research. Till now the concept was that the brain is the producer of consciousness and the producer of memories. And when you study near death experience, then you have to say, well, we have to reconsider this concept. And perhaps we should consider the brain not as a producer but as a receiver of consciousness. That's a kind of revolution. All three medical doctors kept hearing the same stories and wanted to investigate exactly when, during the dying process, the near-death experience occurs. Could it be happening when the brain is not functioning, when a person is clinically dead? It's only recently that scientists and medical experts have begun to study such experiences clinically. And it wasn't until the mid-1970s that the phenomenon suddenly became well known. An American doctor, Raymond Moody, published what was to become a best-selling book, Life After Life, collecting the accounts of 150 people who had reported having had one.
One of Moody's former students recognized the need to study such cases in a more objective way. Today, the psychiatrist Professor Bruce Grayson is one of the most eminent experts in the field. At the time we started studying these phenomena, there really was no general consensus about what near-death experiences were. Nobody had heard about them. Um, certainly the public didn't know anything about near-death experiences, and most scientists, most doctors, had never heard of them either. It was important that researchers know that they were studying the same thing other researchers were in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. So we had to have some consistent criterion for deciding whether this was or was not a near-death experience. And so we developed the NDE scale, the near-death experience scale, to determine whether we were studying the same thing, in fact. The near-death experience scale taps into different components of the experience. The first is changes in thinking processes. Uh, people often report their thinking gets much faster than usual, much clearer than usual. I felt myself being accelerated in time. I also felt my vibration being raised to a very, very high vibration. At that point, I knew I was dead. The second component is changes in emotional state. People often report being overwhelmed by feelings of peace and joy and well-being, a sense of being one with the universe. I just felt very safe and loved and warm, like how a baby feels in a womb. Uh, the third component is a, uh, quote, paranormal or psychic component where people will report feeling like they've left their physical bodies. All of a sudden, I popped out, out of my body, and I uh, felt like somebody just like pulled me right out of my body. They may report extrasensory perceptions of things going on in a distance or visions of future events to come. As I stood there, I stood a thousand years in the past and a thousand years in the future. It was all the same. And the final component is what we call the transcendental uh, component, a sense of being in an unearthly or otherworldly environment where they may encounter what appear to be deceased relatives, religious figures. And I saw like a, a spirit, like the Virgin Mary just actually walking past me, and I'm like, oh my God. Professor Grayson's work was groundbreaking and exposed the fact that near-death experiences were much more common than anyone had realized. It also meant that it was now possible to measure what kind of experience someone has. Heather Sloan had led a normal and quiet life. She'd never heard of a near-death experience until the day she died. She was rushed into hospital with an ectopic pregnancy. What was about to happen to Heather would later be classified by the Grayson scale as having all the components of a deep near-death experience. They rushed me up to the operating theater. It was an immediate operation. And I don't actually remember leaving the ward. <laughs> so I must have blanked out somewhere along the line going to the theatre. And when I came to, I was aware that I was standing beside a bed. Having been a nurse in the past, you think, well, I better check how the patient is. And I looked in the bed to see the patient and then realised it was me. And that was the first that I'd come to realise that I was standing outside of me. I was then aware that there was a voice 
to the side of me, saying, don't worry about that. Go, you know, come with me and, and, and move into this light. And I moved into this tunnel of light. When I got out to the other side, it was, well, I can only describe as pure love, really. Um, absolute pure peace. I wasn't even bothered about what I'd left behind. And eventually you meet the only thing I can describe as pure perfection. I cannot describe it in any other way. And at that point you think, I don't think I should be here because I didn't really feel that I was worthy to be in front of what was pure perfect. And nobody says you're dying, that you're just allowed to sort of become aware of things and, and you go into a, a kind of a review of your past right, right from when you're really tiny. You remember absolutely everything. You feel instantly all the effects that any action I had on another person. You, you, you just literally felt everything. And then came the realisation of, am I going back? And everything halted and it was, I said, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't stay. And I got very, very distressed because I was thinking I had an 18-month-old baby at home with a husband at sea and no family living anywhere near. I thought, who is going to look after her? And I, who is going to look after her? And I was really, really upset. And basically it was gradually a discussion of, okay, we'll let you come back. And there was this massive jolt and I was back in me with the nurses fiddling around, checking my well-being, I suppose. Heather slowly recovered. She told few people about her near-death experience until she read a similar report in a woman's magazine. It was then she realized she was not alone. So intrigued by what had happened to her, Heather decided she had to find out more. Her search led her to Southampton General Hospital, to Dr. Sam Parnier. Dr. Parnier has been collecting evidence from individuals like Heather and also started some clinical research into near-death experiences in cardiac arrest patients. This research was designed to try to establish their cause. Until 1997, there was very little data that had been gathered from objective scientific studies. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to start to really shift the whole study of near-death experiences from theoretical debates into objective science. And therefore, we set up the first ever study uh, that was published in cardiac arrest patients. And we looked at things such as a lack of oxygen that had been proposed until that point, drugs that patients may have been given, and also their own personal psychological state and religious views before coming to hospital. In order to rule out anecdotal and subjective accounts, Dr. Parnier's research was extremely selective. He included only people who had suffered cardiac arrest and had been clinically dead. The term near death is a very wide term which is very difficult to define and therefore we decided to study a group of people who've objectively and scientifically reached the point of death. 
We know from clinical practice that the definition of clinical death is a person who has no heartbeat and no breathing and also whose brain stops functioning. And looking at the, what happens to a patient during cardiac arrest is that by definition they have the first two criteria and that within a few seconds their brain also stops functioning. And therefore we have the closest model to study the dying process. Cardiac arrest patients were therefore the perfect group to study. Brain expert and neuropsychiatrist Dr. Peter Fennick teamed up with Dr. Parnier to endeavor to find out what happens to the brain during a near-death experience. When you have a cardiac arrest, if you monitor brain waves or the electrical activity of the brain, you find that within eight seconds, it's almost absent. And it's absent throughout the brain, so you don't have little pockets of activity. So, to all intents and purposes, once the heart has stopped, the brain ceases to function. Now, we know from our neuroscience that you cannot have experience without a functioning brain. So once the brain function has stopped, then all experience must stop. If it doesn't stop for any reason, then you, you've made a very strong statement, and that is that mind and brain are not the same. With their research into cardiac arrest patients, they are trying to define when the experience occurs. Could it be happening at the point consciousness is lost, or when we regain consciousness, or the unthinkable? that the near-death experience is happening when the brain is not functioning. It's very difficult for us to say exactly when it's occurring because any memory could be occurring in just an instant and it's impossible for us to nail it down to an exact moment during a cardiac arrest when it occurred. But what will help us to nail it down is where people describe out-of-body experiences, where they describe specific events that had been occurring during the cardiac arrest, which were verified by the medical and nursing staff. So, for example, a patient may describe certain details that were occurring in half an hour into a cardiac arrest resuscitation. And really, in order to be able to prove what's happening in these people and test it more objectively, we need to be able to examine those particular cases. Over the period of one year, doctors Parnier and Fennec interviewed all survivors of cardiac arrest at Southampton General Hospital. Of the 63 patients interviewed, only four had had near-death experiences at some point during the cardiac arrest. What was needed was a bigger study. Hundreds of miles away in Holland, Pim van Lommel, a cardiologist at the Rheinstatter Hospital in Arnhem, was also using the same kind of control conditions in which to study near-death experiences in cardiac arrest patients. Dr. van Lommel and his research team talked to over 300 cardiac arrest survivors within two days of their heart attack. They found that 41 of them reported having had one. One of the patients in Dr. Van Lommel's study was a man who'd been found in a meadow, having suffered a heart attack. He was brought to hospital where the medical team carried out extensive cardiopulmonary resuscitation, during which time he displayed all three signs of clinical death. His heart and breathing had stopped and his pupils dilated. Shocking. 
When the patient was stabilized, he remained in a coma for one week. And after one week, he came back on the cardiac ward, and the nurse who was there during the resuscitation came in for the first time to give him medication. And the patient said, you were the one who was there when I was brought in. You were there when they brought me into the hospital. There when they brought me into the hospital. You took the dentures out of my mouth and put them on that cart. It had all these bottles on it. There was a sliding drawer underneath, and there you put my teeth. And the nurse was flabbergasted. He said, this is not possible. Possibly this patient was in deep coma, couldn't see anything. But the patient told him that he could see everything from above his body. And he could see the doctors and the nurses, what they'd done. So during the period of coma, he could perceive in a position out and above his body. Whilst this was an intriguing example of an out-of-body experience, and seemed to show the mind's ability to witness something whilst in a deep coma, it did not provide the precise time that event took place. But in Atlanta, Georgia, one particular case was about to astonish experts and doctors. Dr. Michael Sabom, a cardiologist, was also studying near-death experiences when he came across one extraordinary account. Pam's case unique in the fact that she had her near-death experience at a time that she was fully instrumented and under medical observation. And I think if you wanted to construct a laboratory experiment where you had someone and took them as close to death or perhaps even into death as possible and then bring them back and ask them what they could recall. Pam's case probably comes closest to that than any other so far that we know of. Pam Reynolds was an established songwriter, singer and a busy working mother. In 1991, she became seriously ill. I began to experience extreme dizziness, loss of speech, some difficulty in moving the body. And it was at that point that my physician recommended that I have a CAT scan. And the CAT scan, of course, showed the aneurysm. And it was a big one. It was a giant aneurysm. I was referred to a neurologist, and the neurologist gave me little or no chance of survival at all. But for Pam, there was one last hope. She made what she assumed would be her last journey, 2,000 miles to the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. I remember the bright sunshine. The light in Phoenix, Arizona is piercing from sunup on and I remember getting into the shower I had been given a scrub kit with a hard bristle brush and an antibacterial solution to reduce the chances of infection I'm sure to this day I can remember the stinging of that brush and that solution on my skin I can remember being placed on a gurney I remember the squeaking of the wheels Neurosurgeon Dr. Robert Spetzler 
decided to take on Pam's case against all odds. What we're looking at is the aneurysm that she had, which is at the very base of the brain. This is the balloon that can burst and cause this uh, incredible catastrophe in the patient's brain. Why is this so difficult in this particular case? I think probably easiest to see here by when you look at this uh, plastic model of the head and we turn it around and we take out the top of the brain, what we're really talking about is that aneurysm is all the way at the very base of the brain and that is why it's so incredibly difficult to get there. So you have to go somehow through the skull because remember the face is here and the neck is down here to get down to this very difficult spot. When we look at it on an actual brain, we can actually see where that is. That's the bottom of the brain. If that fit in here, it would be like this. So we're going to turn both of them around. And now we're looking at what's called the brain stem, which is this function. All the function of the brain passes through the brain stem. And where this particular aneurysm was is sitting right smack dab at the very middle at the base of the brain. And that's why it's so difficult to access, that's why it's so difficult to treat, and that's why it's so catastrophic when it bleeds. The operation Pam was about to undergo was known as Operation Standstill. Pam's body temperature would be lowered to between 10 and 15 degrees centigrade. Her heart and breathing stopped, her brain waves flattened, and the blood drained from her head. She would be clinically dead for a whole hour of the operation. What we want to do is we want to bring that brain to a halt. We don't just want the brain to be asleep. We want the metabolic activity of the brain to stop. Every measurable output that the body puts out really disappears completely so that you have no measurable neuronal activity whatsoever. Prior to the operation starting, a lot of activity goes on. Uh, the patient is put to sleep. Uh, the eyes are taped shut. There are, are little clicking devices put in each ear in order to monitor the brain. The patient is then completely covered. The only thing that's really exposed is the area of the head where we work. I don't remember an operating room. I don't remember seeing Dr. Spetzler at all. I was with a fellow, one of his fellows was with me at that time. After that, nothing, absolutely nothing, until the sound. And the sound was unpleasant, was guttural. It was reminiscent of being in a dentist's office. And I remember the top of my head tingling, and I just sort of popped out of the top of my head. And I was then looking down at the body. I knew it was my body, but I didn't care. My vantage point was sort of sitting on the doctor's shoulder. I remember the instrument in his hand. It looked like the handle to my electric toothbrush. 
Um, I had assumed that they were going to open the skull with a saw. I had heard the term saw, but what I saw looked a lot more like a drill than a saw. It even had little bits that were kept in this case that looked like the case that my father stored his socket wrenches in when I was a child. And I remember distinctly hearing a female voice saying, We have a problem. Our arteries are too small. Try the other side. It seemed to, to come from further down on the table. I, I do remember wondering, what are they doing? <laughs> because this is brain surgery. And what had happened was they accessed the femoral arteries in order to drain the blood. And I did not understand that. In the process of my study, I went and interviewed Dr. Spessler and looked at his operative report, and I found that what she saw from that what she saw from her out-of-body experience seemingly corresponded very accurately to what had actually occurred. She looked at the uh, bone saw that was being used to uh, cut open her skull. I didn't have any idea what this thing looked like. She described it as an electric toothbrush, which I thought was ridiculous. I had to send off for a picture of this saw to Fort Worth, Texas to confirm whether or not what she said it looked like actually was accurate. And I was astounded when I saw the picture. It indeed does resemble an electric toothbrush. I, I don't think that the observations she made uh, were based on what she experienced as she went into the operating room theater. They, they were just not available to her. For example, the drill and so on, those things are all covered up. They're not visible. They were inside their packages. You really don't begin to open until the patient is completely asleep so that you maintain a sterile environment. She also heard a, a conversation during the operation between Dr. Spessler and the cardiovascular surgeons who were cutting into her legs to hook her up to the uh, uh, heart-lung machine. Uh, when the cardiac surgeon incised her right groin, she found that her veins and arteries were too small and she had to go over to the left side and there was some conversation at the time between the doctors. Pam accurately recalled hearing that conversation. At that stage in the operation, nobody can observe here in that state. And I find it inconceivable that your normal senses, such as hearing, let alone the fact that she had clicking modules in each ear, that there was any way for her to hear those through normal auditory pathways. So again, this is very suggestive of the fact that there was some sort of extrasensory perception or out-of-body experience or whatever uh, occurring at the time that was allowing Pam to hear accurately and uh, seemingly see accurately what was going on in the operating room at the time. I felt a presence. I sort of turned around to look at it and that's when I saw the very tiny pinpoint of light and the light started to pull me and there's a physical sensation to the pulling and I know how that must sound nonetheless it's true there was a physical sensation rather like going over 
I heal real fast. Tell me. And I uh, went toward the light. The closer I got to the light, I began to discern different figures, different people, and I distinctly heard my grandmother call me. She has a very distinct voice. And I immediately went to her. And it felt great. And I saw an uncle who passed away when he was only 39 years old. He taught me a lot. He taught me to play my first guitar. And I saw many, many people I knew and many, many I didn't know. But I knew that I was somehow in some way connected to them. I asked if God was the light. And the answer was no, God is not the light. The light is what happens when God breathes. And I distinctly remember thinking, I'm standing in the breath of God. At some point in time, I was reminded that it was time to go back. Of course, I had made my decision to go back before I ever laid down on that table. But, you know, the more I was there, the better I liked it. <laughs> and my uncle was the one who brought me back down to the body. But then I got to where the body was, and I looked at the thing, and I for sure did not want to get in it, because it looked pretty much like what it was, as in void of life. And I knew it would hurt, so I didn't want to get in. And he kept reasoning with me. He said, it's like diving into a swimming pool, just jump in. No. <laughs> what about the children? You know what? I think the children will be fine. <laughs> Honey, you've got to go. No. <laughs> he pushed me. He gave me a little help there. It's taken a long time, but I think I'm ready to forgive him for that. <laughs> but I landed. I saw the body jump. I saw it do this number. And then he pushed me, and I felt it do this number. This is a classic near-death experience occurring under extremely monitored medical conditions where every known vital sign and basically every clinical sign of life and death was being monitored at the time. And that's what makes her, her uh, case so remarkable and so valuable to us. I, I don't have an explanation for it. I don't know how it's possible for it to happen considering the physiological state she's in. At the same time, I have seen so many things that I can't explain that I don't want to be so arrogant as to be able to say uh, that there's no way it can happen. Pam's case points to the fact that somehow she was able to retain coherent perception and memory whilst clinically dead. This suggests the possibility of some kind of mind-brain separation. When the heart is stopped and the brain is not functioning, 
it really is not functioning. There can be no memory. It can't be remembering experiences in some way which are occurring at that time because the memory circuits don't work. So when the near-death experiencer talks about these memories of going out of their body and seeing the resuscitation process, it's difficult for our current neuroscience to understand how this could happen in using a memory system which is defined. And so one has to argue that in some way the information is retained outside the brain and then later on is fixed in memory circuits. Or you have to argue that it somehow or other occurs in the brain and goes into memory in a way we don't understand. Scientists agree that they have yet to discover what the mind is and how the brain produces consciousness. What makes us us has always been a mystery. The question is one of the oldest, most formidable and exciting challenges that science has yet to solve. In the middle of the Arizona desert, there is a scientist who is trying to come up with the answers. To unravel just what the mind is and explain how consciousness occurs. Professor Stuart Hameroff is an anaesthetist and the director of consciousness studies at the University of Arizona, Tucson. Is you all nice and relaxed? Yeah. Okay. Professor Hameroff has been working with British physicist Sir Roger Penrose in developing a theory about consciousness which might bring us closer to an understanding of how and when near-death experiences happen. When a patient is anesthetized, they are completely unconscious. They feel no pain, they have no awareness and no memory. Unlike sleep, there's no dreaming, and if someone takes a knife to them, they don't feel it. So it's different than sleep. The brain is still active, there's electrical activity, but it's kind of like a motor idling, the clutch is in. The brain is telling the lungs to breathe, the brain is telling the heart to work, the brain is doing all kinds of things, but the thing that's missing is consciousness. So it's a good way of actually separating, isolating consciousness from other brain functions, which is why understanding anesthesia is a big clue to understanding consciousness. Professor Hamroff has been studying microscopically small structures known as microtubules that are deep inside the cells that form the brain. It is at this microscopic level that he believes that the brain produces the mind. The inside of cells, including, the inside of cells, including nerve cells, are comprised of a network or forest of girders or cylindrical structures called microtubules that self-assemble to form the shape of the cell. They are also the nervous system of the cell and process information internally to organize what happens within each cell and also how cells interact with other cells. These microtubules are actually very well designed as computational devices. Hameroff proposes that the microtubules are tiny onboard computers which organize cellular activities within the brain. He's been studying the behavior and the structure inside the microtubule itself. 
He believes that the microtubules act as quantum computers. The quantum world at the level of atoms and below, for example, has some very strange properties. For example, everything can be interconnected to everything else. Particles can be in two or more places at the same time, a process called superposition. So in a quantum computer, information can be in two states at the same time. This ability to be in two places at once, known as superposition in space-time geometry, is thought to be a fundamental property and the very fabric of the universe. The fundamental level of the universe is so infinitesimally small that it's impossible to even imagine. But if we go down in size scale, for example, from our brains to our nerve cells into the microtubules and then inside the microtubule subunits to the level of atoms and then keep going down even smaller than atoms, because atoms are mostly empty space, the space between the nucleus and the electrons, down and down and down, everything is smooth. But eventually we reach a level where there's some kind of coarseness or irregularity. This may be something like, imagine you're in an airplane looking at the surface of the ocean from 33,000 feet. The surface of the ocean looks very smooth. However, if you were in a boat on that surface, it'd be very choppy. And there's a pattern, obviously, in the waves in the surface of, of the ocean. Similarly, when we get down to this fundamental level of the universe, there's information, there's patterns, and that information carries conscious precursors that give rise to our complex consciousness. It is here, at the most basic level of the universe, deep inside the brain, that Hammeroff and Penrose believe consciousness occurs. Their theory is based on a well-established field of science, the laws of general relativity, as discovered by Einstein. Einstein told us that everything, matter, energy, space and time, are all particular arrangements. The fabric of the universe, which works on the tiniest of scales. It's at this level that consciousness may also exist, connected to the brain by quantum processes in the microtubules, inside nerve cells, which could explain how the near-death experience occurs. When the brain stops functioning, the microtubule coherence, if you will, the pumping metabolic activity stops, and this information leaks out. It isn't lost, it isn't destroyed, because it's occurring at the fundamental level, so it just leaks out into the universe at large. But rather than dissipate and spread out, it hangs together due to another strange phenomenon called quantum entanglement, or quantum coherence. So I think by this mechanism, it's possible for consciousness to exist, at least temporarily, outside of the body. For example, floating above the ceiling, floating above the body, observing the resuscitation. Okay, Kai. How you doing? Open your mouth. Okay, in the recovery, surgery's all over. Professor Stuart Hameroff's theory may have given us a glimpse of what life after death could mean into a world we don't yet have the technology and scientific capability of fully understanding. But one thing is clear and proven. Near-death experiences have extreme effects on the people who have them, because for them, life continued after death. The, the vast majority of people who have a near-death experience are profoundly changed uh, for decades after the experience. Uh, they typically become less materialistic, 
uh, less competitive, less involved with personal power, prestige, fame, much more altruistic, much more concerned with relationships and with the spiritual side of lives. And we have many examples of people who change their careers, who change relationships as a result of their near-death experience. Gordon Allen was an entrepreneur, a ruthless and very successful financier who worked in the heart of the Pacific Northwestern business world. The important values that I had at that time, the first important value was to make sure that everything was okay with my children. The second important value was to maintain uh, cash flow, and that was really what made me run. It also was a lot of fun to make money. I enjoyed making money. I enjoyed making money. The funny thing about money, and the good news about money in some respects, is that it totally doesn't care who owns it, or how you came to own it. It really doesn't matter. And so that means that one person who's a not very good person can have a lot, and somebody who's a good person maybe isn't going to have it, because money doesn't discriminate in any sense of the term. Gordon's ruthless business world was about to be turned upside down. He became acutely ill with pneumonia. Feeling like he was about to die, he took himself to hospital. I remember him putting me in a wheelchair. I remember looking at the admitting area and being wheeled into some sort of a room. And that's about what I remember of that part of it. My next cognitive memory is that of, of uh, of leaving and traveling. You know, and the out-of-body experience begins. The very first thing that came over me was this absolutely profound sensation of love. I mean, and it was so unconditional. A love of the child, of the child of the mother, the two of those interacting. And that love was so totally unconditional, it was overwhelming to me. And that's, that was beautiful and wonderfully accepting. And as I proceeded into this, the sense of this very profound love was followed by a sense of purposefulness, that whatever is happening has a point to it. I ended up in more of a space space. I'm not standing on grass and I'm not out into the woods and there aren't uh, streets paved with gold. But where I'm at is in a space and a high spiritual being has greeted me. And there's two other spiritual beings, one on the left, one on the right. And uh, I'm being communicated with. There's no, I cannot recreate the sounds in my mind. But uh, I was greeted as an old friend and a loved brother. And that if I chose to go home, come home, I could. Yet, I had not finished what I was there to do. And they said, look, they didn't say look, but and immediately the thought was communicated to me that all the skills and all the talents and everything that I've been given, which I've been very, very, very blessed with, 
were for a purpose greater than the purpose that I used it for. The purpose of making money in it itself wasn't it. That there was another purpose for it. And that they should now be applied in some ways that would be shown to me. Absolutely, that's the moment my life changed. That is the moment my life changed. When I came back, my heart is filled and you would describe this as being on fire. Your heart feels like your heart's on fire. And it's on fire with love, okay? The sensation of love that I experienced as I was going through the out-of-body experience has retained itself. I'm there. It's in me. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't changed. So I'm trying to understand where it's going to go, but I've decided that I was not going to try to save anything that I had from my past life in the financial world or the business or anything. So those people who were most vehement about the fact that I wasn't going to work in the real world anymore as financial guru and that they weren't financial guru and that they weren't going to be able to make a lot of money off of me anymore by whatever method that was, I called them up. I say, hi, Bill, hi, Jack, or whoever it was. Uh, this is Gordy, you remember? Oh, yeah, Gordy. And you can hear him pull back off the phone because they're waiting for the hit. Because in the old days, that might have been a hit coming after him, looking for the money or whatever I was doing. I said, hey, you know, last time we talked, I wasn't really too happy about the way that came out. And I think I would be a less than candid if I didn't say I was not being good to you. But I wasn't being loving to you. And I just wanted to call you and ask your forgiveness for whatever I might have done to you. Now, if you want to hear dead air on a telephone, do that. <laughs> you have total silence. And then there's a little stutter, and they say, well, yeah, I guess so, or whatever, and that's the end of it. Today, Gordon has severed all links with business and left the world of money far behind. He's now a qualified counselor and uses his new understanding to help others change their lives. The after-effects that Gordon Allen experienced are typical of a large number of near-death experiencers whose lives before the experience were not compatible with the values they learned afterwards. Some of the people that I've, I've talked with have included like a policeman who found he couldn't kill people, couldn't shoot after his experience and went on to become a high school teacher. Uh, someone organized in, uh, involved in organized crime who went on to become a counselor for delinquent children. Um, these are not unusual stories to hear from near-death experiencers. I think in someone's and so with someone like, like Gordon, who had such, uh, such drive and such organizational skills, to see him use these now to help other people rather than just acquire more wealth um, is quite phenomenal. The richness of the life that I have today is like the Sistine Chapel compared to a plain drab little room somewhere. I mean, it's just, you can't put it in words, the richness of the life that I have today. Even though I live a very modest life, drive a very modest car, the richness that has been provided to me today. And this is not in any way social or economic or anything that we can measure by the standards that we normally measure things.
Whilst near-death experiences change lives, they've also given some individuals extraordinary experiences they would never have dreamt of. The most intriguing examples are of blind people becoming sighted for the first time. Vicky Naratuk had been blind from birth. I've never seen anything, no light, no shadows, no nothing. A lot of people ask if I see black. No, I do not see black. I do not see anything at all. And in my dreams, I don't see any visual impressions. It's just taste, touch, sound, and smell, but no visual impressions of anything. In her early 20s, Vicky was involved in a serious car accident. The next thing I recall, I was in Harborview Medical Center and looking down at everything that was happening. And it was frightening because I'm not accustomed to see things visually because I'd never had before. And initially it was pretty scary. And then I finally recognized my wedding ring and my hair and I thought, is this my body down there? And am I dead or what? We can't bring her back into the classroom. They kept saying, we can't bring her back, we can't bring her back. and. They were trying to frantically work on this thing that I discovered was my body and I felt very detached from it and sort of, so what? And I was thinking, you know, what, what are these people getting so upset about? Then I thought, I'm out of here. I can't get these people to listen to me. And as soon as I thought that, I went up through the ceiling as if it were nothing. And it was wonderful to be out there and be free, not worry about bumping into anything. <laughs> and I knew where I was going. And I heard this sound of wind chimes. It was the most incredible sound that I could describe. It was from the very lowest to the very highest tones. As I was approaching this area, there were trees and there were birds and quite a few people, but they were all like made out of light. And I could see and it was incredible, really beautiful. And I was overwhelmed by that experience because I couldn't really imagine what light was like. It's still a very emotional thing when I talk about this because um, there was a point at which I, I, I could bring forth any knowledge I wanted to have and it was like this place was where all knowledge was and then I was sent back and then I went back into my body and it was excruciatingly painful and very heavy and I, I remember feeling very sick Vicky's case suggests that her mind was working at a time when her brain was unable to supply her with such visual information, even if she could see. With some scientists questioning the idea that near-death experiences might be occurring when the brain has stopped functioning, the work by Dr. Pim Van Lommel 
and Dr. Sam Parnier and Peter Fennick may have huge implications for neuroscience. If you look through science, what's amazing is that the things that any group of scientists often believe has been completely black and white, I mean completely correct. If you look 50 years later, most if not all of them have been changed. And I think with this subject as well, in the future, we'll find that actually mind may well be a separate scientific entity that can continue functioning when we reach the end of life and when the brain has stopped working. That will have huge implications for all of mankind. There's no doubt about it. It will revolutionize our whole way of scientific thinking and it will open up a whole new field of science which has as of yet been undiscovered. If I was in a, a road accident, I would be quite happy to stay where I was now. My children have grown up. I've got no problems, no difficulties, certainly no fear of death. It's almost now as if I would actually welcome it. I'm very thankful to have had this experience because it helped me in many aspects of my life. and. It helped me to deal with things a lot more constructively than I might have otherwise. I would die to have a near-death experience. Yes, that's a corny answer, I know, but it's true. Had I not had that near-death experience, I would have no interest in being here today. I think death is an illusion. I think death is a really nasty, bad lie. I don't see any truth in the word death at all.